continued our study in March, chapter 10. We, he looked at verses 13 through 16. He did a great job talking about humility and the aspects of childlike faith. He taught that children, uh, we must become like children in order to receive and live out the kingdom of God. That, uh, that kids, the children, have characteristics that we need to have as, uh, as followers of Jesus. And so thank you to Andrew for that. This, this morning, we continue in our study as Jesus continues his journey to Jerusalem. And we're going to be eyewitnesses to a scene that can be emotionally bring heartache, but it's also a scene that can give us great understanding and hope in what Jesus wants to, to do in our lives and through our lives. That's uh, the familiar story of the rich, young ruler. So before we go any further, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for what you've shown us and reminded us of already this morning through song and through the lyrics that we sang and rehearsed about your promises and about your truth. And so God, as we open your word, we pray that you would continue to find our hearts open and ready to receive from you. And God, I do pray that you would help us pause long enough to be present with you. To not be worried about what's after church this afternoon or even later this week. God, keep us right here because we believe that you're here and we want to hear and respond you. Would you take a minute and pray for yourself, for the person beside you, that they would be present and ready to hear and receive from the Lord this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. There's a poem that was written, and from that poem, I believe, a song. And it was a, it's about the amount of God that we want. I'm not going to read all of it, but I'm going to read part of it. It's a poem by William uh, Wilbur Reese, if you want to look it up later. And it went something like this. I would like to buy about $3 worth of the gospel, please. Not too much, just enough to make me happy, but not so much that I get addicted. I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies, cherish self-denial, and contemplate missionary service in some alien culture. I would like just enough of the gospel to be cherished by some nice, forgiving, broad-minded people, but I myself don't want to love those from different neighborhoods, races, cultures, countries, especially if any of them smell. I would like just enough of the gospel to make my family secure and my children well-behaved, but not so much that I find my ambitions redirected or my giving too greatly enlarged. I would like about $3 worth of God, please. And the lyrics to the song, the chorus by Mark Williams goes like this, $2 of God. Because that's not enough to make me love someone who's not like me, but the right amount to get me through a very busy week. I don't want nothing radical because then I'd have to change my ways. No, I just want $2, and that would be just fine today. No, I just want $2 of God, please. That will be just fine today. Now, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that picture, that thinking about God and his gospel? 
Well, obviously, it focuses on me and what suits me. It's soaked with fear, not abandonment. It's a desire for control, not righteousness. And this morning, we're going to take a look at a man who only wanted two or three dollars worth of God. He wanted the benefits of God without the surrender to God. He wanted Jesus to give him the things in life and eternal life that he couldn't achieve for his own, by his own strength or own power, but he wanted it on his own terms and what he felt like it should cost. So the main point I want to leave us this morning is this, is the person who trusts in himself and his own power can never fulfill or be truly fulfilled. And the title of the message is Desiring Righteousness. There's two areas that we're going to look at, and then we'll continue sort of this theme next week. But the first thing I want to look at is verses 17 through 20, and it's a desire for obtaining righteousness. If you have your Bibles, Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 20. As he, Jesus, was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. Verse 17 lets us know that Jesus is on a journey. Remember where he's headed? He's headed to Jerusalem where he's going to be mocked, he's going to be tried, he's going to be beaten, he's going to be betrayed, and he's going to be killed. And as he's traveling down this road, after leaving the children, a man comes up to him, seeking answers to questions about his righteousness and about eternal life. Now this episode is traditionally called the rich young ruler, but you don't find that description in Mark's account of it. You actually find those descriptive words in Matthew chapter 19 and Luke 18, 18. In fact, the... the the, mention, the, the lack of mentioning that he is rich in Mark's gospel almost makes it even more uh, appealing to us. It shows this man is serious in his quest for eternal life by running up to Jesus and kneeling before him. Now, I believe this is one of the most vivid scenes in the gospel because think about it. He came running up to Jesus and flung himself at Jesus' feet. So picture this scene. This is a man who is rich, who is wealthy, who has power as a ruler, and he is young. Now, I'll let you determine what young is. The disciples have never seen a scene like this before. One author said this, There is something amazing in the sight of this story that the rich young ruler falling at the feet of the penniless prophet from Nazareth who was on the way to be tried, convicted, and condemned as a criminal. This rich young ruler comes and falls at the feet of Jesus. It was a courageous move on this man's part. If you remember the story in John chapter 3 where Nicodemus was a ruler, and what did he do? He came at night in secret. Not this young ruler. This young ruler is in front of everybody and throws himself at the feet of Jesus, a sign of reverence and humility. And what does he say? The first thing he says is, good teacher. 
He calls Jesus good teacher, and almost immediately Jesus responds, I don't want any flattery. Don't call me good. Keep that word for God. It almost looks as if Jesus is taking this wet blanket and throwing on the guy's enthusiasm. But notice Jesus doesn't comment on the label teacher. He focuses on the adjective good. And just like we've seen Jesus over and over and over again, he answered the man's question with a question. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. It is a wonderfully confusing response to the man. Requiring a lot of thought, not only for him, but for us as well. Because Jesus, in essence, first said, stop and think what you're saying and what you're calling me. Don't get carried away in your excitement for what you want. Don't get so overcome by emotions. Think calmly. Because this is what you're saying. How can I, Jesus, be good if only God is good? And if you call me good, you must be prepared to call me God. It's what Jesus has been trying to say to his disciples over and over and over. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Jesus says to this rich young ruler, if you call me good, you have to accept that I'm God. John Calvin says of this Jesus' response, you falsely call me good master unless you acknowledge me that I came from God. This is one of the main lessons Jesus has been trying to teach his disciples. But the greatest question I think Jesus wanted this man to consider is this. Why are you concerning yourself with my goodness? It's your goodness that needs to be in the question. And I believe there's an application. Maybe it's an application of reflection that before you and I address Jesus, before we give him all the titles and accolades that he deserves, we need to soberly step back and consider what we're saying and the implication of what it means to our living. Because quite possibly, like this man, you and I can give a tendency to haphazardly address God. Jesus always challenges us to our true belief in who he is. Now, secondly, this question that this rich young ruler asks is a very interesting question. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This man wanted to know what he needed to do to inherit. Now think about that for a minute. In order to inherit anything, it does not matter how you perform as much as the position of whose you are. Think of anyone who has inherited money or land or possessions from somebody who's passed away. They didn't have to do anything. It was because of the graciousness and the generosity and the gift of the one who went before them and passed away that they are made the recipient. There's no action required to obtain the inheritance. It was given or distributed based on not a person's behavior or action, but on the simple fact of the grace and generosity of the one who passed away, the one who died. There's no behavior. No behavior that can obtain the inheritance. Now, Jesus responds to this rich young ruler by rattling off 
what looks like the Ten Commandments, at least the last six of the Ten Commandments. They're not quite in the original order, and except that do not fraud is substituted for do not covenant. And at first glance, this strikes me as an odd answer for Jesus. There's nothing you can do, but here's a list. And I can surely see, if I'm there, the disciples and me kind of going, you've lost me, Jesus. Why would Jesus respond that way? Jesus began his response with the law. Why? Because this man understood the law and would be able to relate to it. It was a firm Jewish belief that the man who kept the law would live. And so Jesus began there. If the first answer that Jesus gave isn't striking, it's the second answer that the rich young ruler gave that will really strike us. Because he says, Teacher, I have kept all these things since I was a kid. Give me a break. This was a rich, young man, and now he was a keeper of the law. Even honor your father and mother all the time? Really? This verb kept in the Greek is phulaso, which means to continue to keep or command. Not only have he kept it, but he's continuing to keep it. Meaning that he was a good guy. He was a rule follower. Culturally, maybe even by religious standard, this guy was a good guy and followed the law. Remember that. Many commentators rightly say that there's no suggestion in the text that his wealth was dishonestly acquired. And Jesus doesn't say anything about it. Jesus seems to agree that he has been an exemplary, law-abiding person. But in my critical, maybe jealous mind, I'm thinking, there's got to be something. Is this man lying to Jesus? What's this really speak to about the man? It speaks to his need. I've kept all these things. I don't really need anything else, do I? Jewish law concentrated on the behavior. Christ concentrates on the heart, and that's where Jesus goes next. The law always points to our inability to keep it. And therefore, we need somebody who has and can keep it for us, which is Jesus, and it shows our need of grace. And that's where Jesus goes. Now, here's something I want us to consider. Watch this just for a second. Here's a rich, young ruler, a good guy, a law-keeping guy. And he said, I've kept all those things since my youth. If that's true, if that's the case then why would he need to seek an answer to the question of what must I do to inherit eternal life? If he was that good, why would this man not already know that he has eternal life? Obviously, whatever he had done on the outside was not fulfilling what he was missing on the inside. Somehow he knew that all of his goodness still didn't make him righteous or a recipient of eternal life, and neither does it today. 
in Matthew's account of this story, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 20, this rich young ruler goes through this scenario, but he also has this other phrase. He says, what else do I lack? One author said this, this young man tries to make himself believe that all is well, yet on the inside he is pathetically perturbed. There is something missing. His outside righteousness is not fulfilling his inside need. There's a lack of peace in his heart and mind that so much drives him to the feet of Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do? If he had it all, he wouldn't have come. The man is aware of his defect, an important and crucial point in his spiritual condition and healing. The application for this part of the story to me is... No matter what we use to fill us on the outside, behaviors, righteous acts, an impeccable image, it doesn't fill what's missing on the inside. It is what is on the inside that flows out that fulfills, not what is on the outside that flows in to fulfill. And so Jesus continues and has further questions and responses to this man. Jesus demands righteousness, and he says this in verse 21 and 22. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you'll have a treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But at these words, he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Mark in this story tells the story of a man who's invited to give up everything to follow Jesus. And think about up until now, when Jesus has made this command to others, they dropped their nets and followed him, Simon and Andrew. James and John dropped everything to follow Jesus. But not this time. Notice the first seven words of verse 21. Jesus, looking at him, Jesus felt a love. If there's ever been a thought that Jesus is going to Jerusalem, he's going to the cross with anger or bitterness or frustration, or if he's lost his sense of purpose or his compassion, we need to look at the first seven verses of chapter 10, verse 21. Jesus, looking at him, Jesus looks at him with love. It's a powerful statement because you and I can replace the him with our own name. Jesus, looking at Matthew, felt a love. No matter who we are or where we have been, what question we are asking, these seven words grant us hope that Jesus is all about love. Now think about it. This rich, young ruler came and threw himself at Jesus' feet. And Jesus looks at him with love. Some scholars have suggested that Jesus may have knelt down given him a hug, touched his shoulder, and looked him in the eyes. Whatever the response of Jesus, it was consistent with love. 
I've used this expression and picture often. This rich young, rich young ruler and Jesus were toe-to-toe, knee-to-knee, and face-to-face with each other. And this rich young ruler is now in this position, and Jesus looked at him with love. You know, people have different looks. We've all seen the different looks from people. How many spouses have ever gotten a look from the other spouse? Parents, how many of you gotten that look from your kids? Kids, how many times have you gotten that look from your parents? We have looks for everything. If I ask you to, to show me your look of being angry, show me a look of being happy, show me a look of being surprised or sad, we have looks for what things smell good, what smell bad. And now we get this, this picture of Jesus looking at the rich young ruler with love. What does that look like? Have you ever seen Jesus look at you with love? This word love is the word agape, and in Greek it means this. It's a love that's called out of one's heart by the preciousness of the object loved. Meaning that you and I are objects of God's agape love. Jesus loved this man. It was his appeal. It wasn't a look of anger. But it was an experience, an invitation to experience more. Jesus didn't condemn him. My guess is that probably it wasn't the same tone as he used with the Pharisees or the Sadducees. This was a look and a tone of love, of compassion, of invitation, of acceptance. Jesus' look is a look of gracious love that always invites us to more for a rearrangement in our lives and surrender. I'm convinced that one of the greatest tragedies of non-believers and believers alike today is that we do not have or have not seen Jesus looking at us with love. Most times when I talk to people, and even in my own life, I think maybe Jesus is looking at me with contempt, with disappointment, with anger, with this thought of that I didn't approve my love for him. And this rich young ruler saw a look of love from Jesus. And eventually, it turned from a look of love into a look of grief. And that grief was the most bitter grief of all. It was the grief of seeing a man deliberately choose not to be what God called him to be. How many of you experienced that grief? Parents, when you talk to your kids, and they say, no. Friends that you've talked to about God, and they go, no thanks. 
and me doing youth ministry for a number of years. You would tell them all about Jesus. And then they would come back and say, I just can't do this right now. I have friends that won't understand. Girlfriend or boyfriend, I really like my weekends. People think I'm weird. I'll be considered one of those people. Thank you for sharing, but no thanks. That's the scene we see with Jesus and this rich young ruler. Thanks, but no thanks. And there was a look of grief. The command or direction that Jesus gave this man was strong and seems really tough. But Jesus was not asking him to do any more or less than anyone else. He was simply getting to the obstacle or stumbling block that was hindering his surrender. He had done this with others many times. This rich young ruler respected Jesus and thought Jesus had the answers he was looking for. But knowing is not enough to fulfill his pursuit of righteousness and eternal life. In today's culture, if you go outside this room, you would ask people, what do you think of Jesus? And they would go, I respect him. They may even be able to rehearse the story of Jesus and Easter. But knowing it and respecting it is far from surrendering to it. Respect was not enough for this man, and neither is it enough for you and me. And Jesus confronts him with that. And the man couldn't do it. Just two dollars, Jesus. Just two dollars of you is all I want. Because that's not enough to make me love someone who's not like me. It does say that the man had much property, but after a closer look, we really see that the property had him. It was not about the man's wealth. It was about the man's unhealthy and sinful grip of his wealth. One author said this, Jesus knew that the rich young ruler in addressing him as good teacher was being very superficial. If this young man had really believed with all his heart that Jesus was good in the highest sense of the term, he would have obeyed the command he gave him. Jesus, if you're good, then what you're telling me is going to be good. But he didn't really believe he was good. At the heart of what it was. And verse 22 says that he went away sad. It's important to note that Jesus never gives a command without an invitation. For sure, he tells the man to go sell all he has, but he also says, come and follow me. It's quite consistent with what Jesus has said to the other people. Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple, Luke 14. Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid everything. He hid it again, and ended in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. And the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Surrender. Letting go for the greater treasure of Jesus. And the response of this man is so tragic. One of the saddest things to see in the Gospels. Just let your mind go there. Jesus, looking at him with love, says, come, follow me. And the man looks back at Jesus and then walks away.
I think Jesus is inviting this rich young man to join him on his journeys to become one of the disciples who enjoy the immense and unspeakable privilege of spending the time with Jesus and learning from him on a day-to-day basis. And it's our same invitation for us today. Come, follow me. This story, this true story from Scripture is about a man who seems to have done everything right. But to have done it all in the service of the wrong master, which was himself. And Jesus offers him a solution. Eternal life, yet he can't because of his false sense of security in the things of the world. It's true, the person who trusts in himself and his own power can never fulfill or truly be fulfilled. So I want to leave you with a couple of questions this morning. How are you addressing and approaching Jesus? Do you sense your need, your deep need? This man came to Jesus calling him good teacher, and Jesus challenged him to stop and think about who he was talking to. Christ always challenges us as to our true belief in who he is. The second question I want to ask is this. What are you holding on to that is keeping you from following Jesus? How many of you know how to trap a monkey? It's kind of a random out-of-the-blue question, right? Well, in Africa and other countries, monkey hunters and trappers, they drill a hole in a coconut or a gourd just big enough for the monkey to stick his hand and arm in. And as long as the hand is open and extended, the monkey can go in and out of the hole. However, if the hand is a fist at the bottom of the coconut or gourd, the monkey can't get their arm or hand out. And so these hunters, these monkey hunters and trappers, will take these coconuts, these gourds, and they'll attach them to something that can't be moved. And then they'll put in things like nuts and candies and treats that monkeys would like. And the monkey comes along and they reach in the gourd and they grab it and hold on to it. And then the hunters and trappers will come by and the monkey's still there. The monkey's screaming in fear, but he's captured because he's holding on to something worthless. And all he has to do, all he has to do for freedom is let it go. But he doesn't have enough sense to open his hand and let it let go to have freedom. This is the picture of the rich young ruler and the many people who will not surrender their lives to Christ. You see, the devil, with his crafty devices, tries to trap us. As James talks about, he lures us away specifically on what would tempt me specifically on what would tempt you to give us significance and cure what is lacking on the inside. He appeals to us in this way. And then he says things like this. Don't let it go. Enjoy the pleasure of your sin just a little bit longer. It's not really that wrong. No one knows or is going to be hurt by it. People love and understand you, so they would never suspect anything. Plus, it isn't going to lead somewhere anyway that's destructive. You're smarter. You're more spiritual to know when this is a problem. So just hold on to it because you know best. 
And you deserve this. If you let that go, you will never get anything as fulfilling as it back. So hold on to it. In fact, grip it tighter. Make sure don't let it slip. So in listening to this tempter's alluring voice about our specific appetites, we continue to miss the way and freedom of Jesus because we won't let it go. When we fail to listen to God's voice, we continue to have clenched hands. And like the monkey, we have something in our hands to refuse to let go of because we're afraid God's going to take it away and not be the fulfillment of what our real need is. So let me ask you, what are you holding on to that may ultimately be your spiritual downfall? We grasp all kinds of things. Maybe it's a tangible thing like like money. Maybe it's a career we're holding on to really, really tight. Maybe it's entertainment. Man, we just want to be entertained. I'm going to live for the day, and I'm going to have a lot of fun. I'm going to hold on to that. Maybe it's a relationship that can be harmful or even hindering. But maybe there's some intangible things like fear. I'm holding on to fear because I don't want to be known. I don't want to be found out. I don't want to be exposed. I'm holding on to fear of not being accepted or approved. So I'm going to hold on to this image, a pattern, a mentality that I must continue playing this role. Maybe it's an attitude that we believe we're justified in holding on to it, and so we, we become the best lawyers. I know that I can do this. A mind that's continually justifying. Maybe it's control. We want to control our own destiny, control our time, control our schedules. We want to hold on to pride so we can judge others to make ourselves feel better. All holding on to it. And as a word of caution, I found myself in my own life and the lives of others that sometimes the deeper we think we are with God, the more likely we can be deceived. Because we begin to holding on to these things that, God, I know best. And as we hold on to them, all we have to do is let them go to be free. But we're trapped. Clenched fists lead to closed hearts. In closing our hands around our empty treasures, we also close our hearts to God's priceless eternal treasures. How can we receive anything with our fists that are clenched? We cannot receive from God without letting go. Clenched fists leads to closed hearts, which lead to confined, confined horizons. When my fists are clenched, my heart is closed, and my world becomes so small and so confined that I make a prison of my own making. And a new life with Jesus is forfeited. So is there anything in your life that you're holding on to? And you may not be able to answer that question immediately right now, 
but maybe God will unpack it this week. But the question remains, what will you do with this invitation to follow Jesus? Will you let go and place your trust in Jesus for eternal life and obtain his righteousness? If I can be so bold to ask, if you've not accepted Jesus, what are you holding on to? What more do you need? What are you waiting on? Let go of that thinking and that lie that you just need one more thing. Jesus is enough. For the believers here, maybe you're thinking, man, I'm a good guy. I am a good woman. I, I live a great life. People like me. So was the rich young ruler. And he missed the joys of Jesus in heaven because he couldn't let go. If you're here this morning as a believer, but know that there are things you're holding on to that's hindering your following Jesus, let go of these worthless treasures for the true treasure of Jesus. For the non-believer here, there's nothing, nothing you have to do to inherit eternal life. We are the recipients of the one who has died for us. During this song, this last song, Seth and the Praise Team, I'm going to allow this altar to be a place where you let go, to pray and come and just say, Jesus, I'm, I'm letting it go. I'm dropping it. It may be something in this jar. It may be something that the Spirit has pierced in your heart this morning. And I want to encourage you to be like the rich young ruler in the sense of be bold and courageous and run to the feet of Jesus and let it go. A new horizon, a new life awaits. Let me pray for us. God, I pray this morning that you would find everyone here asking you to show them the things they're holding on to, the things that are hindering, the things that are keeping them from experiencing the life that you wanted them to live, a life of fullness and abundance that you promise. God, give us the clarity to see the things we're holding on to are empty if they're not of you. And so, God, I pray by your Spirit, as we pray at the beginning, that you would do a work that we listen and respond. And God, thank you for the reminder that you look at us with love. That while we were yet sinners, you demonstrated your love for us by going to the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.